welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. My name is Kelly Deutsch, and today I have joining me a unique guest who has spent much of his life as a hermit and is now in charge of the cause for canonization of a Russian mystic. This means he's the advocate and facilitator uh, for this woman to become a saint in the Catholic Church. Uh, Father Bob is Father Bob Wild is a personal friend and collaborator of Catherine de Heck Doherty, who is a little-known Russian mystic, uh, or at least I would call her a mystic, a contemplative at the very least. Catherine is known for her anti-racism work, uh, introducing North America to Russian spirituality, and also starting a lay community called the Madonna House, of which Father Bob is a longtime member. Father Bob has spent his life serving in a variety of ways. Uh, leading retreats, living in solitude, editing Catherine's books, and now is the postulator for the cause for Catherine's canonization as a saint. So Father Bob, I'm excited to talk to you today, hear a bit of your story, and to learn more about Catherine as well. So welcome. Good, thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I'd like to start today just by asking a little bit about your story, because you were in a religious community, like a monastery, you were also diocesan priest and you've been a hermit and part of this community. How did that progress? Okay, let, me, let me start out with one of the most uh, fundamental experiences of my life. I was probably about 14 years old and I was in my bedroom studying Greek vocabulary. <laughs> and I was, I was flipping through a book, you know, when you get kind of kind of uh, dis quite disappointed with what you're reading. So I came across a quote by Leon Blois, and it said, the only, the only real tragedy in the world is the tragedy not to be a saint. Mm -hmm. Probably some of your, your hearers have heard that before. But for me, it was a fundamental experience. I probably was about 14 years old. But it kind of opened for me what life was really was really about. It was about union with God. That if you if you attain that, you attained everything. If you miss that, you missed everything. So it kind of opened up for me the whole vision of what was what was life about. And so shortly afterwards I came in touch with the Carthusians. At the time I was studying with the Jesuits in Buffalo, New York. But I came across the Franciscans and the beautiful flowers of St. Francis and that, that said to me, oh, here's a way where you, where you can really find God. So I, I was in the Franciscan seminary not shortly afterwards, but I found out that they were not exactly living the way St. <laughs> Francis lived. And so during that time, I had read 
Thomas Burton's Seven Story Mountain. And in the mountain, I, I found for the first time that there was such a such an order as the Trappist in the United States of America. I'd never heard of that before. So a few months after that, I was in the Trappist <laughs> in a place called Geneseo, New York, which is still existent, a monastery founded from Gethsemane, New York. And after two years, I discovered some of the things that Thomas Burton was writing about in his writings that there was a lot of, a lot of activity in the Trappists. <laughs> a lot of noise and I said well this is this is not the best place for me and there must be some other place so <laughs> so after two years I left there and through a series of circumstances I finally came across probably what is the most uh, fundamental religious solitude community in the world the Carthusians and a few a few months later I was able to join the Carthusians. At that time, they were in Vermont, New York. They were starting their first American um, foundation in New York. And they sent me to England, <coughs> excuse me, because of the language situation. And probably for two years there, I came across my most fundamental experience of the, the presence of the Lord in two, two years of almost complete complete solitude, except for noise and divine office and different things. But it was a life of a total solitude all week long. And I think that was the most fundamental, fundamental change in my life because uh, it became clear to me that life was about the experience of God, experiencing the presence of God in your life. And that was for me the most uh, profound experience. But after after two years, <laughs> they decided that I probably didn't have a vocation, which was one of the greatest disappointments of my life. And part of me is still in a cell in, the, in England, in the Carthusian Monastery. Hmm. So I returned to uh, the States, and one thing led to another. I became a diocesan priest in Buffalo, New York, spent uh, about three or four years in the parish life. But in that time, I became aware of uh, Madonna House. Some priest friends of mine were going to Madonna House. And so I, I went there and uh, finally met, met the community in Catherine. And it, it, was, it was one of the communities that, you know, that people were writing about community life and men and women living in the same community, etc., etc. One of the things was uh, the uh, the Bustinia, which you can talk about a little later on, but that was one of the attractions for me, a life of solitude and silence. And so when I when I went to Cumbermere, one of the most extraordinary things is one of the first the first day I was there, I was sent to live in a in a Bustinia situation, which today would be an unthinkable, <laughs> an unthinkable thought. But it was like uh, Catherine recognized my desire for solitude and silence. And so that was the beginning of my life, my life as a Pustinic and Covener. So very briefly, that was that was my vocational, my vocational journey up until Covener in probably about 1971 or so. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I there are a few things that stood out to me there. Um, one is is that um, 
uh, Leon Bloy quote, or I, I forgive my lack of French pronunciation, but the, the tragedy of, you know, the only tragedy in life is not to become a saint. And, but your sentence after that was that life was about union with God. And sometimes people don't equate those two, that's, that sainthood, holiness, whatever, you know, words you want to use to describe it. Divine union feels like something so lofty. I mean, I suppose becoming a saint might sound lofty as well. And I'm curious where or how that understanding came to you? Like, what does, what does divine union even mean? Because I think a lot of people are, at least those of the people who are listening to this, are often stumbling upon the contemplative path for the first time. And they've had some glimpse of that. But how would you describe what divine union is? And how did you discover that? Well, through, through my, the uh, journey that I just described to you, little by little, you're doing your life of prayer and searching, asceticism, silence, all these different elements that we read about in the lives of the saints. Gradually, what dawns on you is a, is a growing, a growing presence of the Lord. I think it's a, it's a matter of grace, but we have to do what we can, you know, searching for God and using all the means that are available to us. But little by little, it begins to dawn on one, because dawned on me, that the Lord is, uh, is really present as a living person, not just an idea. And that it's, a matter, it's a matter of grace. It's not a matter of a technique, you know, that you do some technique and it works. You do what you can and the rest is, is the grace of God. But ultimately, it's a matter of a growing awareness of the divine presence. And only, only God can give you that. So it's a matter of, do you, really, do you really want union with God? And if you do, you take the steps necessary of prayer and meditation, etc. And little by little, God in his great goodness, he begins to reveal himself to you as a living, a living presence, not just an idea or a theory, but a living presence. So I think eventually it becomes a, a matter of grace, God and his goodness revealing himself uh, to you. Why do you think that a lot of us on this path begin to crave silence and solitude? Pardon? Why do you again. think we begin to crave silence and solitude when we begin on this path? Well, I, I have a theory that, that silence and solitude it's like the imminence of the presence of God. Mm. You have to think about that. You know, God reveals himself in different ways. But I've come to the understanding that, that silence and solitude is the way God communicates himself to us. And that's why it has such a great attraction. Uh, it's, if you think about deeply enough, just think of the world of silence. It's a world of immensity and uh, mystery and all the other elements, but I think it's God's it's God's way of ordinarily manifesting Himself to us, and that's why it's such an attraction. It's not it's not just the absence of noise, but it's a positive reality, and I I believe uh, it's the reality of the imminence of God, the way God wants to communicate Himself to us, and thus the great attraction of silence and solitude for people. It's not only to enable us to get a, you know aware of 
uh, get rid of unknown thoughts and things, but it's it's a positive reality of God's God's presence. Yes, yes. All my theories. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like there's such a spaciousness there, you know, that that you can discover within and within that silence and solitude. Um, even though sometimes I was talking with someone the other day, I grew up in the Midwest in the US, you know, of vast plains and big skies. And I was talking with someone who grew up on the West Coast, you know, I now live in the Pacific Northwest. And we were comparing notes how I just crave wide open spaces. And he was like, I feel a little like vulnerable and exposed. And I, when he's, you know, in those wide open spaces, because he's used to mountains and forests. And I feel like that happens in the interior life too, sometimes when we come into those wide open spaces, sometimes it feels vulnerable and exposed um, when we're suddenly no longer uh, surrounded by, by thoughts and distractions and stimulus. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about um, the Madonna house. And if you could share with us what kind of life this looks like, because like, is it a movement? Is it a commune? Is it a religious community? How would you describe what Madonna house is? Well, first of all, it's a it's kind of a total community experience of of uh, Catholic priests and the laymen and women, and it's a it's a life together. We have a total community life of uh, prayer together every day. We have a farm where they grow. We grow our own food. It's a total community of uh, taking care of you know meals and laundry and maintenance, everything that a total community involves. And here in Cumbria, there's about, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so people living together. But Catherine's vision was that the gospel is, is it's a way of life. It's not, first of all, a doctrine. The early Christians in the Acts of the Apostles, they defined themselves as the way. And by that, that meant uh, it's a different way of living together. It's not a new ideology. And so in Cumbria, it's a totally community way of way of life with everything, everything that that implies. And, and Catherine, Catherine said that life together is one of the great witnesses to the presence of, of God in the world and the reality of Christ. It's a it's a living community that we try and love one another according to the gospel. And we're open to to people coming to live with us, I think one of the one of the aspects of our community is that we're openness to guests coming. They don't they do well, they don't live apart in some separate house. They they participate completely in our community way of life. And so we communicate to them the reality of the gospel by life, by life together. And I think that's one of the significant, and, and not to make comparisons, but in a lot of the religious orders, if you come to visit them, you're often in a separate house and they might give you a talk once a day or something like that. But Donna House believes in the life together. She said that our community was, she described it once as a university of life. That is where you come together and live together and communicate the gospel week after week, life after life, hour after hour by, by actual living. So you might say Madonna House is a the total community experience. 
And our, our life here in Covermere is the center of our, our community. And so anybody who is interested in joining Madonna House, they would come here and live with us. And after a while, if they decided to apply for membership, they would come and it would uh, be the beginning of their joining, joining our community. We also have a number of houses in different parts of the world. And we have a house in Russia and Belgium and England and different parts of Canada and the United States. So this is our attempt to uh, spread the, the spirit of Madonna House, which is the spirit of the gospel. It's not a separate spirit, but it's, it's Catherine's way of uh, living the gospel that we try and communicate in a variety of ways. What would daily life look like for a layperson? Like if I were to come and say, join and become a member, like, do I still have a job? Is it something that's, you know, separate and set apart like nuns and, you know, monks do? Or what does that yeah, look like? No, you, you would, first of all, you'd, you'd, you'd live in the community and then you would follow the ordinary life of the community. There would be prayers in the morning. We have lauds in the morning. There would be breakfast manual labor, you could be assigned to working in the kitchen or at the farm or almost anywhere. And then lunch at noon and at, after lunch at noon, there's usually a spiritual reading. Somebody reads something and gives a few comments and people share their insights about the reading. And then there's the dishes, there's always dishes in every, <laughs> in every world. Then more, more work, there's a, a, a there's a, a, a small tea break at, at 3.30. Catherine got that from her life in England, a tea break. And then there's more, more work until the Eucharist. There's a daily Eucharist at 5.15. Supper and then the evening, which could be a variety of any kind of things. There might be a, a talk or free time. The evenings are quite, quite a variety, but that would be your schedule for the day. Hmm. It would be pretty much following what the community lives, mm -hmm. pretty pretty much hour by hour. So that's that's the way we share our our life together. So is it a self-sustaining, like live off the land kind of community? Yes, pretty much self-sufficient. We go. We have to buy some things, of course, but we we grow a lot of our own food. We tap maple trees. We have beehives, and, mm. uh, but most most of the most of the a fruit of the what we live by comes from our farm, our farm work. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that because I know a lot of people are really um, um, taken by this idea of, of living off the land, of um, caring for creation in a certain way. Um, and I'm curious what role the earth and the land play in your day to day life, because obviously it's an integral part, but was that something that was part of the original vision or was it just like, oh, well, we got to figure out how to eat and work somehow? It was part of the original vision. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk these days of having lost contact with the world, with the earth, our hands touching the earth and growing yeah. things. So that's, that's part of Catherine's vision that uh, we have to get back to actually touching the earth, growing things, having our own cattle, uh, you know, people nowadays just, if they want something, they just go to the store and buy it. But so many people don't, don't have any contact with life actually coming from the ground, from 
maple syrup coming from the trees, you know, <laughs> lamb coming from real lambs. <laughs> Everything is bought. And so we, we've lost our contact with living things. Mm. The only things we buy are things that we have bought ourselves or made ourselves. But a lot of you people that don't have contact with actually living things. And so a lot of the young people who come, they find that really makes the gospel come alive. The Lord talks about, you know, the seed growing and the flowers of the field. And now they can, they can touch these things. And it makes, it makes the images of the gospel come alive because they're, they're harvesting, they're planting, they're touching the living things by, by which we live ourselves. You know? mm -hmm. Yes, there's something so, there's just a different vitality when, when you have that connection with the earth. And I, I remember coming to appreciate it much more when I was in college because in South Dakota, I, you know, I grew up in the plains and I grew up surrounded by fields and farmland and um, the rhythm of the seasons and of the earth and like and even just the liturgy being involved in you know my my catholic upbringing that was something that was kind of second nature to me and it wasn't until i went away to college that it was strange for me not to see a storm rolling in from across you know miles away or you know it was just strange being separated from yeah, exactly. from all of that rhythm and yeah. it's um it's so different when you do live in the city, you know, like I do now, it's, it takes a real effort to, um, yeah, like you said, I guess, get your hands in the earth <laughs> and be touching, touching yeah. living things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to, um, well, first of all, are people there when you become a member, is it are the lay people also celibate? Are there families there? Or is it, you know, you commit or we, can you be married? Or how does that work? We, we've made a decision to remain a celibate community. It's just a decision that we've made that you can, you could just handle so much diversity. So our, our approach is, uh, it's a celibate community. But we, sure, we do but have, men and women. Yeah, we do have what we call a Cana colony, which is retreats for families. In fact, this is the first uh, week it started this summer. Mm. Families come and they have kind of a, like a retreat vacation together. Mm. There's, there's a, a liturgy every day, but most of it is just interaction with other families. There's a place for swimming and sports. Mm. And so that's our outreach to, uh, to families. But the community itself, we just made a decision that we can just handle so much diversity. So. It is a, a solid community. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So Catherine started this later in life and you, you said you met her through another priest friend who had been going up there. Is that right? Yes. Uh -huh. What was your first impression of Catherine like? Well, I, I first met her. She was in one of our, what we call our arts and crafts center. She was sorting things she 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 loved to sort things i think she'd like to make decisions <laughs> so she was sorting and I, I introduced myself and as we were talking the bell rang outside and it was a, a bell uh, that was one of our uh, members was coming back from someplace so she she said very simply come with me and i i I, struck, I, 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 I took that as very significant. She didn't say, 
but you stay here. I'll be back in a few minutes. She said, come with me. And we walked together uh, to the parking lot. And the, uh, this archbishop, who was a member of our community, he was returning from someplace. And I remember she knelt down in the parking lot and asked for his blessing. And that, that struck me that she, I don't know if she did it for me or, or for herself, but it was her, her way of showing reverence for the clergy of the church. Then we had lunch together. And, and so that was my first meeting. It was like she would, she incorporated me into the community. She didn't say, you, you wait over here until I get back. But she, she brought me immediately into what was going on, someone coming back into the community. And so that was my first impression that she really, she really believed in uh, personally, you know, loving people and incorporating them into the life that was going on there. So that was my first impression of her. So. Yes, I love that idea. I know you mentioned that earlier too of the the life itself is is the means is the message even yeah. and i think of the community that i was a part of in rome for a while and um they would do um what they called convivenzas which literally means living together <laughs> you know they wouldn't have retreats it would just be like come live our life and yeah. um another person that i had on the podcast randy woodley um also does something similar with his, um, he's Native American. And so he, but also, you know, a Jesus follower. And so bringing people to experience how he and, you know, his family lives off the land and just, you, you just live life with them. He's like, we don't really do anything special when guests come, we just welcome them in. And, but it's remarkable how powerful that is yeah. because it's so distinct from, again, our kind of urban corporate lives that we live to, to be brought into a different rhythm and lifestyle and you get to feel it. It's so embodied, you know, it's in your bones and your skin, it's in your manual labor that you do. It's having lunches together. It's like with the first thing the Lord said when the guys came to him and said, where do you live? He said, come and see, mm. come and see how I live and live with me. So that's, that's the, the most powerful experience that we can have living with people who are, are living the gospel. You know. Yes. Yes. And you also mentioned, you know, Catherine had this reverence for clergy, but I also, I mean, from things that I've read and things that she said, it sounds like she also um, had no qualms about speaking very frankly to them when they needed to, you know, <laughs> have a little talking to. Um, what, what, to, how, how would you describe her relationship with I'll have to tell you a story, one of my favorite stories. A priest came to visit at Madonna House, and he had never met Catherine before. And they put him down for lunch right next to her. And during lunch, he was talking on and on about he's going to study psychology, you know, because that's the thing needed today, et cetera, et cetera. And Catherine just listened. And after he was finished, she said, that's a lot of horseshit. <laughs> and he didn't know who she was. She said, I beg your pardon. He said, you, you heard me, it's a lot of horseshit. He said, she said, if I want medical experience, medical advice, I go to a doctor. If I want psychological advice, I go to a psychologist. If I want advice about God, I go to a priest and then she said, Talk to us about God. 
and it really, it really, it really made him. He told me afterwards very angry, but for a couple of days he thought about it, and he he decided that she was right, and she, he never did go to study psychology, and became he became quite a good evangel evangelistic Catholic clergy. So hmm. if she sensed that you were, if a priest was going contrary to his real vocation, she knew how to shake you up. And he, he, he often recounts that story that it changed his whole life, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like that um, kind of Eastern quality about her of just that bluntness, like some of the stories even in her early anti-racist work in, in New York and or when she was speaking in Georgia, you know, and I, uh, I can't remember um, where I read the story about um, some, I think it was a Georgian woman told her that she, she stank like a Negro and she was like, and you reek of hell. <laughs> and I was like, all right, no mincing words here. <laughs> she uh, said it like it was. Um, but I also wanted to ask about Catherine's Russian roots and what impact that's had on, on her spirituality and on the Madonna house and how she unites East and West. What does that look like? Well, first of all, she, she was raised uh, pretty much as an Orthodox person. You know, the, the Orthodox, I think even today, they don't concentrate too much on what we call catechism or catechesis. Their formation is mostly through the liturgy, home customs, hmm. pilgrimages, through experience, you know. And so Catherine in her early formation was quite was quite orthodox. But um, at a certain point around when she was maybe seven or eight years old, her father, because of his business, he had to move to Egypt. And she was put in a, a Roman Catholic school run by the Sisters of Zion. Their order was founded especially for relations between the Jewish people and the Christians. And for four or five years, she had a profound vocation. She had a profound education in Roman Catholicism. And so before she was ever, ever had to leave Russia, she had within her what Pope John Paul II calls the two lungs of the church, the Eastern and Western lungs. And so when she, when she finally was in, in England, England, she came across these same sisters in England who had taught her in, in Egypt. And so she decided to become a Roman Catholic because she knew she would probably never return to Russia. So she, even, even in that school in Egypt, she had a desire to become Roman Catholic. And so she finally saw the opportunity to join the Catholic Church. So, so that began her, her long experience of Catholicism in the, the Catholic Church. You know, she, she was, continued to be a Russian, but she, uh, she tried to learn about her Catholicism. She was a, what you might call a, a good Catholic woman. She went to the Mass every day and Stations of the Cross and the Rosary. So, and the people who started to join her in her apostolate to the poor, they were, they were all Catholic. So she, she hesitated to impose on them anything from her Orthodox Russian roots. So, so until she came to Kalmar, she was pretty much a Catholic person in her writing. She never, 
she never went to Orthodox liturgies. She always went to Catholic masses. But when she finally came to Kupermir, that's another story if you want to get into it. She finally began to expose her her Russian roots, and that's that's something we can talk about if you, if you want to go into that later on. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm excited to really dive deep into Catherine and your upcoming class uh, on for our Women Mystic School because there's Catherine has such richness to to her life, and I. I'm amazed at how few people know about who she is because I mean, when you start reading her and just imbibe her spirituality, I mean, obviously um, <laughs> you you feel this way as well being the postulator for her cause um, that she has something unique and beautiful to share with the world. And I, I hope that people, you know, whether they join the class or go pick up her book, Pustinia, um, or anything else she's written, she's just got such a, a beautiful depth um, to, to her writings and to her work. I don't say this lightly, but I, I've studied Catherine most of my life. I think her spirituality is one of the, one of the greatest in our whole Catholic tradition. I don't say that lightly, but she has a profound spirituality that covers every aspect of human life. And it's not just a spirituality, you know, for contemplatives or missionaries, or it's a, it's a spirituality for everyone. So I think it's, it's very profound and her, her works are just beginning to be published. And I, I think once she is canonized, like I believe myself, someday it will happen. Her works will explode on the, um, the tradition of the church and she will become really more well known than she is right now but that's that's something in the future but i believe it will happen yes what has formed that opinion why why is it that she is so profound and applicable to everyone like what are some aspects of her spirituality that strike you i think you? it's because the russian christianity i think is one of the most profound Christianities in the world. Mm, yeah, tell me a bit about that. When these people were exiled in, in 1922, Lenin, Lenin expelled some of the best minds and hearts of Russia. And the historians, you know, they set up different centers, especially in Paris. Historians are saying now that the, the, the best Russian tradition was it really established in the 20th century outside of Russia mm. by these people who had been expelled by Lenin. And in my latest book, my latest book is called Ekaterina, which is the Russian word for Catherine. I try and show that Catherine is part of this wider movement of Russians who were expelled from Russia, who continue to uh, foster the Russian spirituality and tradition. So. So what you have in Catherine and, and a lot of the others, Russians, you have a great contribution between the profound Russian spirituality and the Western tradition. Mm. Russia had been pretty much isolated from the West, but at the revolution, some of them were finally uh, related to the Western tradition. So you have, you have a, con a combination of the great Russian tradition with Western spirituality for the first time ever after the revolution. So Catherine yeah. is one of the great uh, exponents 
of Russian spirituality outside of Russia. And because of her conversion to the Catholic Church, she was able to combine in, an own, her, in her own person the Eastern and Western lungs that uh, Pope John Paul II spoke about frequently, you know. Yes, yes. When I, um, I had a period of illness where I was mostly bedridden for 18 months and I- My goodness. Huh? Yes, I, I, during that time, I really fell in love with Russian spirituality. Oh, and I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yes, it was, it was the first time that I had read Catherine. It was the first time that I'd really read Dostoevsky and- oh. um, uh, way of the pilgrim and the, like philokalia yeah. you know all those wonderful things and uh -huh. something that struck me about about russian spirituality well two things i think one is just their it's almost like an innate mysticism like that russia somehow has this mystical soul that feels and sees more deeply than many other cultures perhaps do and so i loved that that came up in a lot of um, Russian writings, but I also loved how, um, I think this is probably true of Eastern Christianity in general, that oftentimes the East takes the path of beauty, whereas the West has been fixated on truth basically since the Reformation, you know, and we're like, okay, we got to argue truth and define things into their minutiae, you know, point three, sub point A, you know, and that's wonderful, but I feel like beauty has a way of coming in the back door, you know, it kind of skips that like argumentative, rational part of our brains. And, you know, the, whereas over here on the West, we might be, you know, arguing theological points. I feel like in the East in Russia, they're like, here, pray with this icon, <laughs> you know, and just like yeah. see what it reveals. And there's something um, really profound about that. I think that's true. That's why the great theologian Hans Urban Balthasar, he felt that beauty had to be restored to theology. Like theology can't simply be true. It has to sing. Yes. I it has that. to be beautiful as well. So I think that's, that's true. The, uh, the Eastern church often emphasizes that more than Catholicism. So I think that's true. But we're, we're beginning to revive that and to have beauty enter our our catholic uh, view yes that's yes. happening i think yes and I, I think that's at least from my own experience i would say there was more of that in in roman catholicism than there was for a lot of my my protestant friends you know at least in the catholic tradition there is a, a tradition of, of art and architecture and music and you know all of that mm -hmm. um it, yeah i suppose it just depends because i know there are plenty of um well, everyone has their own experience of Christianity, I suppose. And so making sure that it involves the body and our, our sensual experience, like our, our five senses is, I think, yeah, I think that's one of the attractions of Catholicism, that it, it appeals to the religious needs of people. Mm. People just don't have intellectual needs, but they have religious needs like mm. song and liturgy and uh, icons and painting. So I think Catholicism applies to the religious needs of people. And that's why it's it's so popular in one of its directions for for so many people, you know. So. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I, I feel like so many of those that you just named are also just our embodied needs. Like we, we yeah. crave ritual or to express 
you know, in whether it's song or paint or <laughs> sculpture or whatever, you know, it, the creative expressions as well. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about as well was what being a postulator involves, because I don't think too many people get to meet postulators, people who are in charge of, you know, the canonization process of a saint. What does that look like? Is it a full-time job or what does it all involve? Well, first of all, a postulator is someone who has to kind of collect whatever he can about the life of the person. The church is uh, trying to decide if this person should be raised to what we call the altars of the church. Should they be raised to canonization? So his or her job is to, uh, is to provide all the information about the life of the person so that the church can make a decision whether she should go ahead and uh, proclaim this person, you know, a, a saint. And so that, that's been my job. It's a, it's a, Catherine lived such a long life. So she has a lot of letters. We estimate that she has about 50,000 letters. They're not, <laughs> they're not oh, all of the wow. same. Not all of the same, you know, importance, but she wrote so much and lived so long. She lived 80, 89 years. So my job is, uh, is been to collect the information and eventually to present it for the church's uh, evaluation. So that's, that's the process going on right now. It's, right now it's still at what we call the diocesan stage. That is, it hasn't, nothing has gone to Rome yet. But because of her long life, uh, it will take a while before we can get all the information together. We have a wonderful archives here at Madonna House. It's almost like a semi-professional archives, and so we're we're kind of we're kind of ready for the final investigation, whenever that will come, uh, for the church to uh, to make a decision. So, but I, like I said before, I I believe that her life is so profound that I, I, I believe one day she will be she will be canonized, but it's probably not going to be in my lifetime or probably not even in yours. You're a younger person than I am. But uh, it'll be probably in the future sometime. But I think eventually it will it will happen. Please God. So keep that in your prayers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious what criteria the church uses for who gets called a saint or not because if technically a saint is just someone who's in heaven like how does the church say you know this person gets to be called like saint catherine or not well basically it's if they have lived in a heroic way the gospel of the lord you know she talks about heroic a heroic life so you know we're all trying to be you know good christians good people but some, some people are living it in a very heroic way. And that's that's what a saint is. So the church tries to determine, did this person live a heroic mm. Christian life? Not just an ordinary life, but was their life uh, lived according to the really profound uh, challenges that the Lord offered to people? So I think it, that's the criterion their life was their life a heroic life mm. of the gospel that's what the church tries to decide and so 
So you look at what the person did, their writings, their experiences, their apostolate was, was this thing more than normal, mm. more than the ordinary uh, Christian life. So that's, that's the criterion basically. Yes. I, I love too that heroic doesn't necessarily mean like they accomplished huge things in the world. You know, like some people are going to be like a Mother Teresa or, you know, someone who just like did amazing things or founded an order, you know, and I, Catherine did found like Madonna House and the Friendship House in New York. But I, I love too that saints also include, you know, married couples or porters, like people who were in charge of just welcoming people at the door of a monastery or, um, or Therese, for example, who just, you know, she died when she was 24. She became a nun, but like, yeah. it's not like she went off and like became this crazy missionary all over the world. I mean, she interceded, but a simple life can also be a heroic life. Yeah, I, I, think, I think one of the aberrations of the church has been not ordaining uh, lay people in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a number of lay people now being canonized. But I think in the history of the church, that's been one of the blind spots. You know, we've ordained uh, bishops and priests and religious. But I think there's been a real lack of awareness of laity in the church. But that's, that's changing now. And Ed Crashen will be a good example of that. But I but I think there has been a blind spot of uh, not recognizing lay lay sanctity in, in the church. There should actually there's a there's a lot of lay people in the church. <laughs> as you know. Quite a few. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite an aberration that, that most people canonize are religious and bishops and priests. I think that's a real aberration. It has to change and it's changing now with the last few popes. So let's let's pray that that can that continues, you know. Yes, yes. I that's one thing that we really wanted to emphasize in our in our women mystic school too is to make sure that we have a number of of lay women because so often we hold up like Teresa of Avila or even Julian of Norwich or you know Hildegard or some of these great mystics and they're wonderful. Um, but sometimes when their life is just so different than our own, it's easy to just leave them kind of on a pedestal somewhere on a shelf, yeah. like that's wonderful. <laughs> but to have to have the Catherine Doherty's and the Dorothy Days and um, other people, um, we're having one on Evelyn Underhill and Eddie Hillisum, you know, just they make life and divine union feel so much more realistic and reachable for normal people. It also portrays a real wrong idea of holiness that, that holiness is mostly for religious. And I think that's that's kind of a almost a heretical idea, you know, that there's there's so much holiness in the church. And so it's very important that uh, that lay people be recognized for their holiness. I'm sure when we when we get to heaven we're going to meet a lot more lay saints than religious. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> All the mothers and fathers will be there. Yes, absolutely. So, so Father Bob, just a couple more questions. One, um, 
you have been a priest for, is it, I have written down 55 years. Is that accurate? Yes. Uh -huh. 55 years. I'm curious in all of that time, I mean, you've spent some time in silence and solitude, both with like Carthusians as well as at the Madonna house. You've spent time as a diocesan priest. You've led retreats. You've lived with Catherine who may one day be a saint. I'm curious what or how your perspective on the spiritual journey has changed in those 55 years? Like what kind of lessons life has taught you in those decades? I think the main lesson is that every person has their own calling. Hmm. And I try and tell people, listen to the Holy Spirit present within you and be sensitive and courageous to the inspirations that you are being received. Like I think every person has a very special vocation. Do you remember Cardinal Newman's great prayer that I have been called to do something that nobody else has been called to? And so in my spiritual direction, I try and call people, not, not to myself, but the real director is the Holy Spirit living within them. And then you have something that God what's to be done in the world that no one else can do and no one else has been called to do so try and be sensitive to that to that mission so you know like we think of the mission of Catherine Doherty or Mother Teresa but um, Kelly has a mission too and everybody else does and I think to find that and discover that is one of the great uh, goals of life to discover what your personal mission is like like for myself years ago i discovered that my personal mission was to make catherine doherty known mm. to the rest of the world and i think that's that's one of the great lessons that i have learned is that people have to be sensitive to the lord present within them and yes there's the teaching of the church and there's all the spiritual writers etc but the main teaching is what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit within you, he will guide you to everything that I have said to you. And so that's, that's important for every individual. That's the core, the core of their life. So I think that's one of the main lessons that, that I have learned for myself and for other people that we all, we all have a special mission. Mm. So listen to the Holy Spirit in your heart what that mission is for you, yes. what that mission is for Kelly. <laughs> yes, I love that. And because I feel like so much of that is revealed in, in silence and solitude when we're able to get in touch with those, those deeper longings, those, um, they, they tend to be so subtle sometimes. Sometimes they're loud, <laughs> sometimes they're very loud. Um, but when we when we encounter our desires or even our spiritual wanderlust, you know those those unnameable longings, and allow them to be incarnate and to follow those those um, yearnings that God has placed on our hearts. You know, I mean, even just looking at my own vocation and how it's unfolded, I thought it was in religious life for most of my life. You know, becoming a nun, and so I entered this community where they were dedicated to spiritual direction and spiritual formation, and then life fell apart with this illness. But to see how those deeper desires 
are still being incarnated. Like I do spiritual direction and spiritual formation now just in a very different way than I anticipated, mm -hmm. you know? So it's beautiful to see how those, those desires blossom and flower um, sometimes in ways that we don't expect. My last question for you, Father Bob, is if people want to learn more about you or the Madonna House or Catherine, where should they go? Well, as, as I intimated before, I believe that, that Catherine is one of the great teachers of the gospel of the 20th century. Yeah. The, the Lord has given us a number of outstanding women in the 20th century, and I believe Catherine is one of them. So it's been my, my great uh, privilege, really, to study her life, to write about it, and I and passing on her her tradition to the whole future, to the whole future of the church. And so I'm I'm still writing. In fact, uh, just a few days ago, I started another book. I've I've had published a number of uh, articles and magazines that most people have never seen. So I'm writing a book called Catherine Doherty. 50 years of reflections. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that'll be, that'll be my next book. So anyways, it's been my, my great uh, privilege to be involved in her, mm. in her tradition and her uh, passing on one of the great spiritualities of the 20th century. So yes, so one of my great reasons for Thanksgiving to God. And even now I'm, I'm approaching 86 years, I'll be the same age as, I'm the same age as the Pope. So uh, please God, I'll still be able to function for a few more years. And I, I appreciate your, your invitation and being with you and your, your friends today. So I, I thank you very much for having me talk with them and giving yes. my life story. Absolutely. It's been a delight having you here. And um, if people want to learn about the Madonna House. I know you guys have a website. I believe it's madonnahouse.org. Yeah, we have a good website, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I believe you can get all of Catherine's books there as well. Yes, that? they're available. We have a publications office so they can write and order books from us. So I hope they look at our website. It's a very good website, I think. Yes, yes. And I, I mean, I hope sometime in the next few years that I get to come visit Madonna House and I encourage everyone else to as well. Maybe we'll take a little pilgrimage up there. I hope so. I hope you can come, <laughs> Kelly. Yeah, please do. Yeah. That would be delightful to come along. And I invite everyone who's listening as well to join us um, in August here very soon to listen to your masterclass on Catherine DeHeck Doherty and learn more about why she is such a powerhouse and you know, one of the greatest spiritual teachers of the 20th century. So um, anyone who wants to join us, um, if you're not already in our Women Mystic School, you can join us at womenmystics.org. So feel free to come along for the ride. Good. I'll Wonderful. look forward to that. Yes, likewise. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Many blessings. Thank you all for listening today. God bless you. God bless all your listeners. Yes. Okay. Thank you all. Bye all now. Bye-bye. Right.